0: and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called of the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: There are a lot of Good ways to study the Bible, interesting ways to, to read through the Bible. Some of us read through the Bible in different kind of ways every year. Um, we might do it in chronological order. We might do it uh, just in the order in which the Bible comes. And interesting ways to read it in the order that the Jewish Bible is ordered, uh, which gives you kind of new insights sometimes when you do that. Uh, I think one interesting way to study the storyline of Scripture is to just look at the stories that happen on mountains, because. There's a lot of different stories that happen on mountains when you look at the story of Scripture. And actually, if you just look at the stories that happen on mountains, um, you can kind of get an outline for the entire story of of the Scripture. In fact, I cannot think of, and in fact, I, I challenge you, you know, later if you want to say, hey, you're wrong, I'll take it, okay? But I cannot think of a single story in Scripture that happened on a mountaintop that was not really significant to the story of God. Traditionally, the tops of mountains were seen as a place where heaven and earth overlap. So mountains are this particularly significant place when we come to them in Scripture. And so when you see something happening on a mountain, you should slow down and see what's happening there. A few examples. The Garden of Eden was on a mountaintop. It was this temple that was on the mountaintop. We know it was on a mountaintop, not because it says in the garden was on a mountaintop, but there were four rivers all flowing out of Eden. And where do rivers flow out but from a higher elevation? Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat after the flood. Moses receives the commandments and speaks with God from Mount Sinai. Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jesus delivers his famous sermon on the mount the transfiguration of Jesus also occurs on a mountaintop the crucifixion of Christ occurs on Calvary or Golgotha and one day he'll return from Mount Zion the theme of mountains in scripture is important. There are many peaks. It's like, a, it's like a panoramic of mountaintop peaks that you see in scripture. And of all of those peaks, today's passage is certainly one of the highest. Today's passage is certainly one of those peaks that would draw your attention. If you were a mountaineer, you might want to go climb that peak. You might want to go check it out. We should spend extra time looking at this story of Abraham and Isaac walking up a mountain in the area of Moriah. This story today is one of the most celebrated stories in the history of the world. There are people all over the world who know this story. It's one of the most famous stories ever because it's celebrated not just by Christians but by Jews. And Muslims even have their own version of what happened with Abraham and his son. And so it's one of those stories you could kind of go almost anywhere in the world and have someone know the story of Abraham and Isaac and what is happening there but this is a story of not only of one man who is willing to obey god no matter the cost but this is the story of a god who is willing to provide no matter the cost and so those are our two points for today one god's people obey god no matter the cost God's people obey God no matter the cost. And two, God provides for his people no matter the cost. God provides for his people no matter the cost. Number one, God's people obey no matter the cost. We're just, as we do here oftentimes, we just work through the passage verse by verse to see what God has to say to us today. Verse one, after these things, Abraham tested, or excuse me, after these things, God tested Abraham And said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. So the the text keys us in on the fact that this is a test right at the beginning. Imagine reading this without knowing that. You would feel kind of like Abraham. You would feel like there's a surprise in here. You might feel a little scared as you read this. There's what we call dramatic irony going on in this story, which is where the audience knows something that the characters don't know. We know it was a test. Abraham thought this was real life. It's not a test for him. He's like, I just got to obey. God's talking to me. I'm going to do what he says. And so God shows up and he says, Abraham. And Abraham responds with, here I am. Everybody say, here I am. This is the first of three times that Abraham says, here I am in this passage. He repeats it. And that's to show this story unfolding, and each time the drama is escalating as he says, Here I am, here I am, here I am. Verse 2 God said to Noah, or to Noah, <laughs> God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains, of which I should tell you. Now, if you grew up in church or if you grew up in synagogue, even this passage might not have the same effect on you as what it would if you were hearing this for the very first time. Because what's happening here is cuckoo for cocoa puffs. This is nuts. What God is commanding Abraham to do doesn't make sense. He's been waiting for 25 years to receive this child, and now God is like, he's like the boss from office space saying, yeah, hey, um, yeah, I'm gonna need you to uh, uh, go sacrifice the child that you've been waiting on for so long. Yeah, I'm gonna need you to do that. And that that should strike us as just bizarre. And it does. And in fact, if you're a non-Christian here visiting this morning, you might hear this and you might think, Well, this is exactly why I'm not a Christian. Because if God can tell Abraham to go and sacrifice his one and only son, what's to stop God from telling Jim down my street to kill his son? If God can just tell people to kill people and then it's all of a sudden okay, I don't want to believe in a God like that. And non-Christian friend, you have a point. You have a point. This is crazy. But there is a big difference between God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his only son and Jim down the street hearing voices from who he thinks is God. There's a very big difference between those two things. First of all, when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, he has some cultural understanding of what's going on. This isn't God telling Abraham to go murder his wife. This is God telling Abraham to go sacrifice his son, which is something that culturally in this time, in this day and age, people would do. Many of the religions practice child sacrifice. And particularly, they would practice the firstborn child sacrifice. When you look at the scriptures, the firstborn child is very important. The first of anything is very important. And in fact, the first cattle, the firstborn cattle would need to be slaughtered given as a sacrifice. This is in, in Exodus. And then the first fruits of the grain every year would be given as an offering to the Lord. So we give the Lord our best. We give the Lord our first. And so here God is saying, hey, give your firstborn and your only child to me. If you think about how important it is being a firstborn child, you need to recognize that in ancient society, the firstborn child got everything. They didn't split the inheritance the firstborn child got everything. I was doing some research on this this week because this never made sense to me, even though I'm an only child, so I'm getting everything anyways. But it never made sense to me. I'm like, that doesn't sound fair to the secondborn, thirdborn, third born, 12th born. You know, they had a lot of kids back then. Um, why? Why does the firstborn get everything? And then I I was reading about this, and one commentator just brought up the point that if you split it, a lot of the wealth for families in that day and age was in their land. And so that meant that you had to split the land. So let's say you have five kids. So you split your estate five times, and you give it to your five kids. Well, that seems fair. But then what do they do? They each have five kids, and then they each have to split their portion of the land five times. And before long, each estate is like the size of a Somerville property. And you don't really have much to manage anymore before too long. And so to keep the family going strong, people didn't think individualistically. You know, we think very individualistically in our society. We think about, what about me? But in that day and age, it was more about the family. And how do you keep the family strong? You keep it together. And so the entire property went to the firstborn child. And so when God commanded Abraham to go and give up his firstborn child, it was with some cultural significance of what's happening. If you remember also, this is the very beginning of the book. This is the very beginning of the Bible. God's people are still learning what God is like. They're still trying to figure out who is this God. And so when God says, hey, you go give your child to me, Abraham's like, oh, you're that kind of God. Okay, let's go. Kind of. He's like, I don't want to, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you tell me to do. But this whole thing Is written to an Eastern society that needs a lesson on who God is. And it's like this whole thing is written as a dramatization saying, I'm not that kind of God. If it was going to a Western society, all God would need to do is send a presenter with a a nice slide deck to walk through it and we would get it. Uh, immediately. Oh, okay, you're not that kind of God. But this is not our culture. This is ancient Near Eastern culture. And instead of a slide deck, God gives the people a story and an important story so that they can learn he's not that kind of God. And so let's continue to walk through this passage. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Sometimes, you got to love scripture, sometimes you can cover ten years with one verse, and sometimes it slows down enough to tell you that Abraham went out with an axe and chopped down a tree and collected the wood, and then they went for a walk. It says they traveled for three days. Some commentators have mentioned that the land of Moriah is not a three-day journey from where Abraham was staying. And so what they supposed was happening is Abraham was stalling, giving God a chance to change his mind. Some commentators have theorized that he actually took a walk around the Dead Sea, and so he didn't show up for a few days. He went the long way, giving God an opportunity Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. He's withholding a little bit of information. He's not telling them exactly what he's going to go do. I and the boy are going to go over there and worship and come again to you. Two things to note here. First, Abraham calls Isaac the boy. Uh, or a boy, this is the same word that's used of Ishmael in the previous passage. In fact, if you want, and we can do this at some other time, uh, but the previous passage, Genesis chapter 21, uh, has so many parallels with Genesis chapter 22 and the story of Ishmael and Hagar and then the story of Abraham and Isaac. So many different parallels between these two stories and they're put together for us to see these different parallels and I could draw those out for, for you at some other time but the word for boy is the same word that's used of Ishmael previously. and In that story, we know that Ishmael was about around 16 years old, given the the different age differences between Isaac and and Ishmael and what was going on in that story. So one would assume that Isaac, he's not a child in this passage, but he's probably an adolescent, probably in his teenage years-ish. We're not sure exactly how old he was. But the other thing that I want you to notice here is that Abraham told his servants, stay here while we go worship and come back to you. Abraham does some assuming here. Abraham is assuming that he and Isaac are coming back to the servants. Stay here while we go worship and then come back. He doesn't say, and I come back to you. He says, and we, we will go worship and we will come back. Well, why does he assume this? Is God going to somehow lift the command to, Isaac, to sacrifice Isaac? Well, he doesn't think that. He's going to do the thing. How is God going to make Isaac come back with him? The author of Hebrews actually helps us because the author of Hebrews makes it really clear what's happening. He says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, Abraham's obedience is informed by his faith. Abraham's obedience is informed by his faith because Abraham has the faith that God could raise Isaac from the dead even after he was killed even after he was sacrificed, that, that he would receive his son because God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And you can't be a great nation if you don't have any children. And he just sent his other son away. Ishmael's been sent away. This is his only son. And so he knows that God's going to live up to his promise. And how is God going to do that? He doesn't know. But his assumption at this point is that he's going to go obey God. He's going to sacrifice Isaac. And God's going to bring Isaac back to life through resurrection and they're going to come back to the servants. He has the utmost confidence that God wants what's best for him even if he's asked to do something that shakes him to his bones. Verse 6. And Abraham took the word took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. Abraham's placing the wood on Isaac's back as they climb the hill. They walk together. What are they talking about? We don't know. I, I assume Abraham's trying to avoid the topic of what's happening here. And then we have the only recorded conversation between Abraham and Isaac in all of the scripture. This is it. This is the only time we see this father and son converse with one another. Abraham speaks, or Isaac speaks up, He says, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. The second here I am, the plot thickens. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What a question. Isaac's putting the, the, the pieces together here. It must have felt like a warm knife going straight into Abraham's heart. As he hears his son, inquisitive about what's about to happen, Isaac doesn't know. How does Abraham respond? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And right here we learn what this story is all about. You see, the traditional way of understanding the Abraham narrative is to apply it in this way. This is the moral of the story, traditionally, not not in a Christian context. Abraham obeyed God no matter what, so you do too. Abraham obeyed God no matter what, so you do too. That's a application, an application. That is a way to think about it. But here, I think that God is giving us an even better point, which is, This story is not about Abraham's obedience. It is about God's provision. This story is not about Abraham's provision or Abraham's obedience, but God's provision. We do have to follow God no matter what. And there will be hard things in following God. I'm not trying to say following God is easy, it is very difficult. Jesus Christ Himself. Said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There will be tons of things that are difficult to do as Christians. That is an application. But we're never called to obedience apart from God's provision. We are never called to obedience. Apart from God's provision. What's driving Abraham up that mountain? What's keeping him walking toward the the place of the altar? It's not just a commitment to obey God, it is that, but it's also a promise and an understanding of God's provision that's keeping him going. It's not just the commitment to obedience, but the dependence upon God's provision that God would provide for them no matter what. So we learn, point number one, God's people obey God no matter the cost. But also, point number two, God's people, god excuse me, point number two, God provides for his people no matter the cost. God provides for his people no matter the cost. Verse nine, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. All this is in cooperation with Isaac. Remember, Isaac's a young man, spry, 16. I don't think I could catch a 16-year-old. I'm only 36. Isaac's 100 at this point. I don't think he's going to be catching them if he wants to get away. Isaac is obedient to his father. He trusts his father. And so he's doing what his father tells him to do. He's doing all this in cooperation. Verse 10, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. It's a a word of, of deep, compassion this is the same way that we see david speak to his son absalom 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 when a name is repeated like that someone's having deep compassion jesus approaches martha and says martha martha it's a a repeat of deep compassion god says abraham not just once but twice abraham abraham and what does abraham say say it with me here i am Here I am, just as with Ishmael last week, death is interrupted by a word from the Lord. The third and final, here I am. And God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham didn't know how God was going to provide on the top of that mountain. He thought that God was going to provide through resurrection, and instead, God provided through substitution. He thought that God would provide through resurrection. Instead, God provided through substitution. This story, if you're not thinking about all the parallels to Jesus yet, I'm going to tease them all out for you and help you to understand exactly all the ways that this is foreshadowing Jesus. This is like, when you know about Jesus, this is like going back to watch your favorite movie and and watching the beginning and being like, oh, that shows up again at the end. You know, I don't, I just watched a, a movie for the second time, one of the Oscar nominated movies and uh, was watching it with Megan because I wanted her to see it. And at the beginning, there's like all these foreshadowing moments that lead to what happens at the end. And I was like, whoa, I didn't see that before. And now we know the end of the story. We know what the foreshadowing is pointing to. So let me draw it out for you a little bit. This, this land of Mariah, where is it? Well, we know exactly where it is. It's right around Jerusalem. It's in the land that would eventually become the city of God, Jerusalem. And many years later, we know that another father would lead his only beloved son into the hills surrounding Jerusalem. That wood would also be placed upon his back as he climbed the hill and made his way to the altar. Except for this altar would be formed in the shape of a cross. On his way to the cross, the only begotten Son of God would plead with the Father. Is there any other way? Even Jesus Christ did not have all of his prayers answered in the affirmative. As Jesus walked up that hill on his way to death, what kept him walking? Was it just an obedience to his Father that kept him going? step in, each step of the way. Jesus was always obedient, but he also had a great faith, and he knew and he had predicted that he would be resurrected, that he would come back to life. Obedience is not the only thing, but hope in the resurrection. Jesus knew that he was coming back. Jesus climbed that mountain so that he could serve, As our sacrificial lamb. That ram caught in the thicket, like every other animal to be sacrificed throughout the Old Covenant, pointed forward to the one who could actually carry the weight of sin. You see, there's nothing significant about the animals. They were not actually able to take on the sin. But Jesus Christ, being God and man, fully God, fully human, is able to take on the sin of man and to die in our place. And so that ram in the thicket, he's just pointing forward to Jesus who is recognized by his cousin John the Baptist at the very beginning of the book of John. As as John first sees Jesus walking up as an adult, what does he say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is who Jesus was. This is who he always will be. The wages of sin are death. Because of what we've done, what we failed to do, we deserve the death and separation from God, but Jesus took on the death and separation that we deserve. He died in our place, though we deserve to be there, though we deserve to be separated from God. He took on the separation on our behalf. God provides for his people no matter the cost. What does it cost God to provide for his people but the life of his very own son? No higher cost can be imagined. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died and took away my sin. I want to end this passage just by a few points of application. The most obvious point of application is this, that if you have not trusted Christ to bear the weight of the penalty of the sin that you have committed in your life, that invitation is open. That he can be your sacrificial lamb, he can be the sacrifice for you, but you have to trust in him. And if you've never done that, we invite you today to place your trust in Christ and to receive the forgiveness and the mercy that he gives. But if you've already taken that first step toward Christ, let me give you four more application points to how this can matter to you each and every day, how this ancient story of Abraham and Isaac can change your life and can cause you to act in a different sort of way. The first, these four very brief points of application, the first is obedience is always worth the cost. Obedience is always worth the cost. There will come days in your life, there have been days in your life, where you're going to have a choice, and this happens almost every day, but to different degrees almost every day, where you have a choice between, I can do the thing I want to do, or I can do the thing that I know God wants me to do. Where I can do the thing that is easy, or I can do the thing that's hard. And the hard thing is following God. It's easy to give in to what we want, right? Just super simple one. Right now it's tax season. Super easy for a lot of people to just kind of fudge those numbers just a little bit so that Uncle Sam doesn't get quite as much as he's already getting. There's the easy answer, and then there's the following God answer, which is give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Just because you get away with it doesn't mean it's okay. Obedience is always worth the cost. Second point of application. God provides more than you deserve or expect. God provides more than you deserve or expect. Because God was willing to give of his only son, That tells us that he's willing to do far more than that even for us. That he is not withholding. Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is he saying? He's saying if God gave you his one and only son, he's not going to be withholding from you after that. If God gave you Christ, why would he be withholding? Why would he be stingy after that? Go to him. He'll give you all things. He cares about you. He's going to give you the things that are good for you. I want you to imagine that you have somehow married a billionaire. That's not true for any of us, I don't think. But somehow you've married a billionaire. Your spouse is instantly a billionaire. And your spouse says I love you so much. I'm going to give you my 30-foot yacht. I'm uh, I just want to give you this declaration of my love. You can have my yacht. Go enjoy your time in the Caribbean. I'll catch up with you later on the Learjet. You can have that too. Now, if your spouse gave you their yacht and their Learjet, and then you come to them and say, "Hey, I know I'm asking for a lot. You did just give me a a yacht and a Learjet. Do you think I can also have a loaf of bread? hungry. They're going to be like, you're insane. Of course, I'll give you anything. I'll give you everything. I just gave you my yacht. Do you know how expensive a yacht is? I'll give you a loaf of bread too by any means. I'll give you whatever you ask for as long as it's what's good for you. And that is the picture that we have Of God from the scripture that his own son not sparing more precious than a yacht he gave us the one he's had intimate relationship with for eternity past to come and die in our place why do we think he's suddenly going to be stingy like we're pushing our luck to ask anything else no his son not sparing we can go to him for anything, and he'll generously give us more than what we think we deserve because we've already received more than what we think we deserve, more than what we do deserve. He is generous. He is not stingy and withholding. Third point of application. Because you've been loved in this kind of way, you can love others in this kind of way. If you've experienced the love of God, if you believe that God really did his send his son, not sparing, to die in your place, then you have the perfect example of love. You have the perfect example of love. 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation For our sins. That means that He was our sacrificial sacrifice, our substitutional sacrifice, propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If you want to understand God's love more deeply, if you've experienced it and you want to experience it more, the best way for you to do that is to love other people in the same kind of way. Now, I'm not just talking about people that are easy to get along with, but I'm talking about people like you, stubborn people, frustrating people, annoying people, your enemies. And I'm not just talking about sharing your faith with them. That is a loving thing to do, and you should do that. But I'm talking about turning the other cheek when they hit you. I'm talking about absorbing the debt that they owe you. I'm talking about forgiving others, willingly losing, dying to yourself. This is the love of God. The fourth and final application here is that hope in the resurrection keeps you walking through the difficulties of life. The hope that kept Abraham walking up that mountain is the same hope that kept Jesus walking up that hill is the same hope that keeps you walking through the mountains in your life. You see, the hope of resurrection isn't something that they had and we don't, but the hope of of resurrection is something that's given to each and every one of us. And if you can look forward far enough, you might, you might, you know, when you're climbing a mountain, you think, when I get to the top, it's gonna be great. The view's gonna be worth it. And you might be in a life where it's like, you just can't see the top. It's a tunnel that doesn't end. But the scripture tells you what's at the top. And that's life with God, eternal and forever. That you will be resurrected like him. That you will enjoy heaven. That you will enjoy the new creations and the new earth throughout eternity. And so as you're walking up those difficult days, you look forward to that. And that's what keeps you climbing. That's what keeps you going. As you know, you have a hope that is beyond this world. You might feel like nothing works out in life, but we have hope in the life to come. So friends, look to the Lamb the one who went in your place. Be reminded of what he's done. Find your hope in the same place that he has and that gift of eternal life and go to him over and over again. The one who generously gave of his own son, would he not give you graciously all things? Each week we take a moment to remember the sacrificial death of our Savior. And we... We remember it through a sacred meal. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he tore it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And so each week as we participate in this sacred meal, as we take of the bread and of the cup, we're reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us, that he is our substitute. He's the lamb in the thicket for us. And that his blood was shed for us. So, church, let's stand as we prepare to sing and respond to God's good news. Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive this meal, we pray that you would help us to examine ourselves, to repent of any sin that we've left unconfessed, unrepented of, good we've left undone. And Father, help us to trust in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. To look to him who endured all things and to trust you as we endure the things of our life. The sin and the struggles that we face. God, we pray that you would cause us to be obedient no matter the cost but also that we would trust in your provision because we know what it cost you. And Father, we pray for anyone here who hasn't received that or for anyone here who just needs to receive it anew. who needs to be reminded of this grace of God that they've taken for granted or that they haven't come to you. God, we pray that they would be filled with your grace and your goodness and your kindness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.